Will y'all give Lisa a round of applause? She has a phenomenal testimony, and, and uh, she wants to use that testimony to bless and encourage others. And uh, so I appreciate her being very patient uh, Friday with me and my very bad video skills, um, as you could hear and see. Um, but just to give her, put her testimony uh, out there in, fr- in front of the, the church, and she's going to put that on her website um, just so others can hear that God can change your life and God can bring you through a whole bunch of stuff that's a mess. Uh, we're starting a series today called The God of Second Chances, and lots of people give God a really, really bad rap. Um, I don't know if you know people like this, but I hear this pretty regular. Um, people say that, that they don't want to trust God because He's so judgmental are so cruel, and they they pick a few stories that they might have heard in church or school from the Old Testament, and then they try to, to weave those into some theology, an understanding or a doctrine of God that is nothing like the Bible actually explains God to be. And so for the next couple of weeks, I really want to encourage you, even on homecoming next Sunday, I want to encourage you um, to bring folks with you to hear about the true God that you serve, who God really is. He's not a judgmental, uh, cruel God at all. Um, Jesus is not a cruel uh, Savior to us. He's actually a very benevolent and generous and patient Savior. And I just want you to be encouraged by that. I found this little video. I've had it for years, and it took me a while to find it. I knew it was on YouTube somewhere um, by a guy named uh, Ken Davis. And Ken Davis is on the radio programs. Y'all hear him on Power 88 or... Uh, Caleb, he has a, he has his own little radio thing. You might remember the name of that, Ken Davis. He does a, uh, Lighten Up and Live. That's it. Lighten Up and Live. And, uh, he's a, he's a, uh, a well-known, uh, national speaker and, and teacher. He actually, uh, teaches, uh, young folks how to preach and teach. And he loves to do that with humor. And, uh, he travels around the world doing a lot of humor. And, uh, here's a little clip about him talking about his view of God when he was a kid. See if this doesn't make sense to you. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it in the most boring, mundane way that you can possibly imagine. Is that what it says? No. I grew up believing that. I grew up believing if it's fun, it's wrong. I thought God's job was to stand up in heaven somewhere and go, Behold! I knew he stood like that because I had seen the picture. Ken Davis, have us fun. No. (laughs) And there's a couple of you that still believe it. And there's some of you that are unwilling to trust God because you think he wants to tear the joy out of your life. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That you might know what abundant life is. He created you for great purpose, for great meaning in life. Now immediately we add all of our own agenda to that. Well, that means I'll be very wealthy, or that means I'll be very famous, or it means I'll succeed at everything I do. And God says, no, my abundance goes beyond that. It's about a relationship with me. It's about becoming not only everything you can be on the outside, but becoming everything you can be on the inside. Now, good. It's a truth, though, that many of us have, over the years, kind of shifted our 
and many people you know have shifted their thinking about God to not be a loving God, but to be cruel somehow, to, to judge us and to, to really wait to just show us um, how bad we are. That is not the God that we believe in at Northside. It's not the God that I've uh, studied the Scriptures from cover to cover uh, since I was really uh, a child in this church. I've read the Bible many, many times, and that God's not in the Bible. Um, there are times in the Bible where he is very harsh in judging. Um, but every time you find that, you know what you find about God? That he has been very, very long-suffering and patient. That he has uh, stretched his hand out to the people that he is bringing judgment into many times to offer them a chance to turn, to repent. He showed them many ways and examples. He sent many speakers and teachers and prophets to them to get them to turn. Um, and then his judgment comes. And so I really want to spend a little time today um, just helping you understand who the God of Second Chances really is and how He uh, functions. Um, his own behavior all through the Scripture um, says that. And, and I'll just start with the most common story to all of us. You don't really need to look it up because you know the story of Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve Himself for His glory and their good. You were created for God's glory and their good. And He put them in the garden and He said in Genesis 2.16, you can freely eat, freely eat of all of this garden. So there was tons of freedom in the garden. And then there was this one tree that God said, uh, just don't eat this one. Just don't eat from this tree. And of course, Adam and Eve uh, were deceived. Eve was deceived by uh, the serpent um, who came and craftily twisted a lot of words of God and a lot of truth. And Eve deceivingly took the fruit. And then Adam willfully took the fruit and disobeyed God's directive. Now, the rule was if you eat of this fruit, you will surely, say it out loud, you will surely die. That's the rule. And God makes rules crystal clear. There was no ambiguity in all that. If you eat this fruit, you will die. In the New Testament, Paul says it this way, the wages of sin is death. That's right, the wages of sin is death. So the rule is, eat the fruit, you die, right? So in Genesis chapter 3, we have... Adam and Eve, in this very crazy moment, trying to hide from God, which tells us that when people sin, they're just stupid. Stupid. Sin makes people stupid. Okay, I've dealt with stupid all my life. In my own life, when I sin, I do the stupidest things, and people are stupid. So Adam and Eve, who are the only two people on planet Earth, they're the only two, right? And so they're God's treasure. They're the two people He created, and He is going to walk with them in the garden like He does every day. He goes for this great walk with them. And they think, hey, today, since we've sinned, we need to hide. So here's what we're going to do. Let's make some fig leaves and, uh, and kind of make the original, I call it the original mossy oak moment where people were making, you know, camouflage clothing. They put on their camouflage fig leaves and they hid in a bush from God as if the God who created universes and stars could not find them. That's nuts. And here they are hiding and and God comes to them, and he, by the way, he didn't even have to come to the garden that day because he knew they'd sin. You know, he didn't have to come to the garden. And the rule is when you sin, you die. So what could God have done? He went, you know what? Clear the slate here. Let's just do a little race moment. We'll just erase these two from the planet. I'd like to start over again. He could have taken their life right there. Matter of fact, the minute they sinned, he could have just stepped in and did the no kind of deal and just crushed them and said, that's it. You know, I've explained that to you. If, you. if you sin, you die. That's not what he did at all. He actually shows up in their garden and calls out to them. 
Where are you? Now, he knows where they are. Of course, he's trying to help them understand you're not where you belong. That's what God does when anybody sins. He tries to give you a clue that it's not a good idea at all. You're not doing what you should be doing. You're not doing right. And it's going to damage you. And so God calls out to Adam and Eve and has a conversation with them. And you've heard me teach on that many times. But ultimately, he says in his conversation back to them, which includes a curse on the earth because of their sin, because of Adam, we all work by the sweat of our brow and have thorns and thistles and all kinds of challenges and pain and childbirth and all that good stuff. We can all thank them when we get to heaven um, for all that. Um, but it's transferred all through us because we're just as bad as sinners as they are. But God says to them in the midst of His judging them, okay, this is the God of cruel judgment that everybody talks about in our society now. You know, they don't want anything to do with God because He's just mean and cruel. He says in the midst of judging them for their disobedience to Him, He says, look, one day there's going to be born from a generation of this woman, there's going to be born someone that's going to crush the head of the serpent that did all that. And he's saying in Genesis 3.15, he says, there's a promise to you. I'm going to redeem all of this. That's in the midst of their sin. That's in the midst of him actually judging. So God being this wrathful, judgmental, cruel God, from the very beginning, he's saying, ah, you sinned against me. And the wages of that is death. So yes, you are going to die. By the way, they didn't die for hundreds of years after that. Adam and Eve lived a very long time. They didn't die for hundreds of years, and they had many, many children. They began to populate the earth. And God blessed a whole bunch of those people, ultimately called Abraham out of all that to be one of his and and made him his personal nation and tribe. And then out of Abraham's uh, tribe and uh, nation uh, came King David, and from the lineage of David came Jesus himself. And God honored the promises in Genesis 3. Because God is a God who's not cruel and judgmental, He's actually a God that says, I love Adam and Eve. Even in their sin, I'm going to figure out how to redeem. You understand? Even in their sin. So when you're talking to people and they say, well, I just don't like, I mean, I know you're a Christian, but you like, you trust God that's just real judgmental. You got to go, not my God. He is, he is a judge. He's the final judge one day. But man, you just don't understand how many chances he gives us and how patient he is. He let Adam and Eve live for hundreds and hundreds more years. To be able to, to bring to, to life, to bring life on earth to us. So this morning, I want to sh- show you a picture of how God saw the redemptive plan actually lived out. In Genesis 3, He says to Adam and Eve, there's going to be a person born from the seed of this woman, and He will crush the enemy's head. He's going to crush the enemy's head. And I just want to show you a great picture of that. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, those of you who have been here a long time, I'm sorry if you keep hearing it. It's just such a good story in John chapter 8. Uh, someone that's very far from God. She's a child of God because she's a Jewish woman. She's a child of the family of God, but she's far from God. And she's going to get a second chance in John chapter 8 and verse 1. The story begins with Jesus teaching in the temple early in the morning. In John 8 verse 1, if you'll just read with me. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again into the temple... And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach there. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the midst. And I'll just set the, give you the setting for a moment before we look at these four lessons um, that come out of this story. I just want you to see the setting. Jesus, a carpenter, really from a very obscure place. He's a carpenter from 
he's a Galilean carpenter from this little tiny town of Nazareth. People say in that time, nothing good could come from Nazareth. And here he is, this 30-year-old carpenter that's just begun to teach in that general area. And ultimately, he's teaching now in the temple. They wouldn't let him into the inner courts of the temple because he'd have to have all kinds of pharisaical privileges for that. He's in the outer court of the temple. It's called the temple, the, the uh, court of the Gentiles. And there he's teaching. And it says all the people, people love to hear him. So before they go to work in the morning, before they go set up their little shops in town and before they open up all their little marketplaces, anybody that can possibly squeeze into that outer court would sit and listen to Jesus teach uh, whatever he was teaching that day. And it actually says in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says this about Jesus' teaching. The people loved his teaching because he taught as one with authority, not like the Pharisees. So here the Pharisees are supposed to take this role and teach, and yet every once in a while a, a, a traveling teacher would come in and sit in the outer court and teach, and Pharisees would listen. If he's teaching clear, they'd let him keep on teaching. Well, they've, got, they've had enough of this Jesus because he's outdoing their teaching. His teaching's so much better than theirs, they've got to figure out how to get him out of there. And so here, here they are, and they've come up with this plan, and they catch this woman in adultery. Now, I'm just going to say to you, when we get to heaven, we'll sort all this out. There's no way they just accidentally caught somebody in adultery one morning. Okay, They didn't just stumble upon that. This is somebody that they had to know. They knew this woman was having an affair. They knew all this stuff was going on behind the scenes. And they were waiting to time it with when, when her t time to be with her lover and Jesus in the temple. If we can get those two coincided, we have this great plan to come and attack and trap Jesus and we get to kill the woman at the same time. So life's good if you're a Pharisee that day because look, the sun came up early, birds are chirping, and it's a happy day because she's having her affair. We know that because that's a timing thing, and we see that happening. We can take, and Jesus walked in the temple and started teaching. Imagine all the people sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him uh, quote Old Testament verses and just bring them to life and explain what God's actually doing on, on earth. You imagine one day we will. We'll sit at his feet, and he will tell us things we never understood about our life here and our life there. He's going to explain all that. So here's Jesus sit, sitting in the temple teaching. Peaceful morning. I always picture the birds chirping uh, early in the morning there in Jerusalem and smell, you smell the bacon bread and all the stuff going on as the city's kind of waking up. And, uh, and all the little noises outside the, the temple walls as, as uh, people are hustling and bustling to get to their things and do their stuff. And uh, here's Jesus just quietly teaching in the temple. And everybody's just mesmerized. And then boom! The doors open, the gates of the temple open, and the, this crowd, this mob scene comes in with an adulterous woman caught in the very act of adultery. They literally took her out of her lover's bed and brought her in before Jesus and throw her on the ground in front of him. It's a tremendous scene. So the story begins with Jesus teaching, but then it turns very dark all of a sudden. So there's four lessons about this, and I'd like you to just follow me as, as we read in the Scriptures. And they said to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might uh, have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
When they had heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older one. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. And he straightened her up, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. For, uh, from now on, sin no more. So it's a beautiful story of redemption. It's exactly what God pictured happening in the Old Testament uh, when, he, when He gave Adam and Eve a promise. It's exactly what He expected His Son to do, to deal with sin differently than everybody else. So the first lesson I would just like to share with you in this is that the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, who have tremendous authority, um, but they're way off base with what they're doing here, um, they skew people's view of Jesus and of God. Um, they judge too quickly and they offer no second chance for someone who's failed. Uh, these people weren't trying to help this woman out of her sin life. They were trying to catch her in her sin life and prove her to be a sinner and then uh, apply the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy and, uh, and take her out. Um, the Old Testament law in Exodus says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's crystal clear. Crystal clear. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's not like a fuzzy way to say that or understand it. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You do not need Bible college to figure this out. One of the commandments is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. So there's, there's no way to, there's no loophole in that for her. She was caught in the very act. Then Leviticus 20, uh, verse 10 says, If you catch people who are Jewish in the act of adultery, you're to take both of them out and stone them both to death at the outer wall. That's just how life worked for the Jews. It was one of the, the rules to keep, pure, keep people pure. Also, the Old Testament, by the way, the law was given to help us understand nobody does good at keeping the law. Um, so every time they did a stoning, they would go, man, we just are terrible at obeying the law, aren't we? Yeah, we're terrible at that. So here is, here is um, these Pharisees acting like the important thing is purifying the nation of Israel. That's what they're acting like. It's not what they're doing, though. They're actually in the temple. Because see, when you, when you catch her in adultery, um, you, could, you could minister to that and change that whole deal, or you could take her out to outside the temple walls where you're supposed to and stone her dead. You don't bring a sinner caught in the act of adultery into the temple unless there's something else evil going on in your heart. Of course, Jesus knows all this. But, but these religious people, they, they skew people's view of Jesus. I just want to say to you as Christians, as, as professing Christians, I look around the room today, I know just about everybody here personally, you're professing Christians. We carry the name of Christ. We carry the reputation of God into our daily life and world. And when you sit in your offices and when you sit in your homes and in your uh, friends' homes and at, at movies and restaurants, when you sit in our community you are carrying the reputation of God with you as a Christian. And so when you do something that's a harsh judgment, or when you say something that's extremely critical, it damages the reputation of God. Because people go, yeah, see those Christians? They're just completely critical of everything. Man, they, they don't tolerate, they don't love anybody. And we have to be very careful because we don't need to tolerate sin. I'm not asking you to be a tolerant person of sin. I'm asking you to tolerate sinners, though, because every one of us are sinners. We were sinners. We're saved by grace now, but everybody you know that needs to get saved has to have some place to turn to that goes, will you just love me through this mess I'm in? And that's what Jesus figures out how to do, but that's what these guys have no idea how to do. 
They are not interested in that at all. Matter of fact, they've got two agendas. We're going to stone her to death, but on the way, we're going to trap Jesus. We're going to give him this little test and see what he says. So God is often misjudged because of the behavior of religious people who act like they know God. They act like they know God, but they really don't have a relationship with Him. It's interesting because in, in the confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees multiple times, um, he, he reminds them, um, He tells them one time, um, thinking you see, you're actually very blind. You think you see, you don't. You're actually very blind. He tells them another time, He says, you're like, <laughs> you're like whitewashed graves. These are, these are the most religiously trained and educated people in Jesus' day. As He's walking on the earth, the, the Pharisees were the most educated. I mean, we're talking like the top-ranked, mentally agile people in the world at the time, in Jewish world. And Jesus says to them, you know what? Man, you're as smart as you can be. But you have no idea what you're doing. You don't understand anything about God. So I want to say to you, it's very dangerous to take a little bit of Bible truth, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding about God and try to create a theology until you read the whole thing, cover to cover, until you spend some time with God's people and you grow up in your faith. And that's part of what our goal is at our church, is to help you all grow up in your faith um, so that you can clearly see. Because we don't want a bunch of Pharisees running around that do this, that judge people um, and, and uh, use their knowledge for wrong purposes. Um, so the second thing, and we just see where this woman's caught in adultery. Um, the Pharisees had, had learned about that. And so now they're ready to, to do this. But here's what they did. They, they have these wrong motives, and it actually says in the text, they were trying to trap Jesus. One translation actually uses that word. Um, they showed up in the temple to trap Jesus. And, and they, it's a simple trap, really. Pretty, they thought it out pretty well, because if Jesus who teaches love and forgiveness all the time. Teaches love and forgiveness all the time. If Jesus says, well, sure, just stone her to death. She broke the law, stone her to death. Then his love and forgiveness message gets real fuzzy to all the people that are just flocking to hear him teach. And people get a little bit like, whoa, that was kind of quick of him. I mean, what happened there? Um, so if he says stone her, he's obeying the law, which is good, but he's, he's actually... Uh, losing some fellowship, And the Pharisees would be okay with that. What they really want him to do, though, was say, no, we need to love and forgive her. Don't stone her. We need to love and forgive her. As a matter of fact, you know, everybody here is just going to love and forgive her right now. They want him to do that in the outer court of the temple as a teacher because if he does that, he's actually saying we're going to break the law. If he says he's going to break the law in the outer court of the temple, you know what the Pharisees get to do? Take him with her. If you teach against the law in the outer court of the temple is one of the as a teacher, traveling teacher that comes into the court, you can be stoned to death now. So they're like, hey, this would be a double whammy. This would be awesome. We just get, there's no, he has no right answer here. There's no right answer for Jesus. So they have this great plan, and we find them really plotting against him. And they're, and they're really trying not to purify anything. You've got to keep this in mind. The Pharisees, their goal is not to purify, which is the, re, the purpose of the law, was to try to bring purity um, God's holiness into His family. You know, part of us as Christians, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring God's holiness by our own lifestyle and then by taking a person that's that's broken or fallen. You listen to Lisa's testimony and, and the, the challenges she went through and the marriages and that she, she had a Christian upbringing, but she fell away from some of that. 
And, and now she's wanting to take in her life, she's wanting to take people that are broken and falling and bring them alongside and give them the truth to lead them to where they should be with God. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take people that are unholy and unrighteous, like we are, um, and just take them on the journey that we're on to become more holy and more righteous. That's the calling of every Christian in this room, of every Christian that God ever uh, died on the cross to save. And here are these Pharisees doing exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And uh, they just have messed up motives. Christians, a lot of times, get really messed up motives, and they just want to point at somebody as a sinner, actually want to expose some sin in a person's life. When they do that, they hurt everything. They hurt the testimony of God. They hurt their, their own testimony, and they do a lot of damage. But Jesus knows the evil in the hearts of this religious mob. So when they show up and, and literally throw her on the ground, by the way, she would have been just tortured on the way there. However far the journey was from her apartment, you know, she would have just probably been wrapped in her own bed sheets, very scantily clothed because she was caught in the very act of adultery, and uh, they wouldn't have given her a lot of time. So these, the simple guards would have been with them. They would have been roughing her up all the way there. And people in the Jewish culture were allowed to condemn her on her way um, to her death. They're allowed to condemn her. They're allowed to throw their old food out. If you got old food in your house and you just want to throw it on her, you can do that. Um, they're allowed to throw uh, rocks at her on the way there. So she's all scuffed up and beat up already. I mean, she's just run down and beat up. And here she's on the floor at the temple um, just in a terrible condition. And Jesus knows the heart of these people, so he stoops down, really to her level, if you think about it. He stoops down to her level, and he starts riding in the dirt, riding in the dirt. And there's just a ton of uh, theology books that try to figure out what he's writing. You know, they're, they're saying that he's writing the Old Testament verses out, um, that he's fixing the quotes. Uh, some are saying he's writing the name. <laughs> I love this one. Some are saying he's writing the names of the lovers that the Pharisees in the room have. He's writing out, you know, the girls' names that they have as lovers. Um, you know, so who knows what he's writing because it's not in the Scripture. When you get to heaven, it's one of my questions. I've got a whole pocket full of questions for Jesus when I get there, and that's one of them if I can remember it when I get there. My glorified body may not care, but my earthly body does. So, But I'm dying to know what he wrote. But I want to tell you, I've studied this passage so many times, and I really want to tell you why I think he wrote. Um, and I think he wrote because he needed a pause. But he is he is a hundred percent human, and he's a hundred percent Jesus, God divine. So there's a hundred percent divinity and a hundred percent humanity there. And we've seen several times, you know, twice in Jesus' personal life, he was so grieved by what was happening, God sent angels to help him. Once was in the desert. Remember when he was in the desert, tempted by Satan, forty days, forty nights fasting, and then tempted by Satan. And and after that, God sent an angel into the wilderness to revive him and help him. Remember that? And then there's another one. Anybody know the second one, Curse? The second time he sent an angel? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is, is praying all night long to drink the cup of our sin. The Bible says God sent an angel into the garden to help him through that. So his humanity is very real. You know, he thirsts and he hungers. Um, he's, he's as human as us. He's also 100% divine. And I want to tell you what his humanity would have done right here. He would have wanted to take them boys that threw that woman on the ground because he honors women, you know, his whole deal. And he honors sinful people. You know, that's not how you treat sinners. You don't condemn them. You release them from their sin. You set them free somehow. 
You bring them to somebody that can set them free. So his earthly Jesus moment, his humanity, would have wanted to take those boys out to the woodshed because they're actually the ones that are violating every bit of God's plan from Genesis chapter 3. The Pharisees are destroying God's plan of redemption right here. And they're ruining God's name in a temple full of people. And I want to tell you something. I really think Jesus, carpenter that he was, strong enough to handle it. I think he wanted to just grab them by the scruff of the neck and drag them guys out into the corner of the temple and knock some sense into them, you know? I'm just saying, I really think that was a challenge. And so he did what we've learned over the years. Many of you have learned how to do this. Some of you are still working on it, okay? You just need to take a little pause, you know? Take the, you know, take the, Take a step back. Let's think for a minute. Let's get our brain engaged. And so he takes a few minutes to think, and he literally kneels down, and he just starts writing in the dirt. You know, scripture. Maybe he's writing a verse to himself. Now, when you think about it in that context, he might be writing something to remind himself. You know, my Father, God, is love. <laughs> you know, John's going to write that later in the epistles, but I'm going to write it on the floor right here in the temple so it stays in my head. Um, I can't. I cannot annihilate all these crazy religious people that say they're my children, but they're acting so foolishly and so sinfully. And so Jesus takes this long pause, and he writes in the dirt. And it's that beautiful lesson that sometimes when there's conflict, it's best to take a few minutes to think, to think with your brain and to engage the Holy Spirit into what you're doing. So it's it's important that as we listen um, or see this scene that Jesus is involved in, it's so important that you see Jesus taking that minute to collect his thoughts. And and if you notice, it actually boils the uh, brains and the potatoes of the Pharisees here because it says, um, as he, he stooped down with his finger and he wrote on the ground, verse 7, listen to this, but when they persisted in asking him, in other words, they're going, aren't you going to talk to us? Aren't you going to answer? And their, their intensity gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And ultimately, he's just, they're flat out going, to, you know, give us an answer. Because they've got him trapped and they know it. He can't answer either way and get it right. Either way, he's going to lose followers or lose his life. And they're excited about that. So they're ready. They're all fired up. They forget two things. Jesus is actually God's son who was sent to redeem sinners. And who did they throw at his feet? A sinner. It's the best place in the world for her to be. They have no idea about that. Okay? The second thing they forget is that he wrote the law. The Old Testament word of God is the law that they're quoting to him. And he is the king of kings, lord of lords. He is the lawyer of lawyers. Here are these men who are studiers of the great law of God, and they've come up with a great way to say, Moses and the law says, they're quoting we're quoting from the law, such as she should be stoned. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Crystal clear, isn't it? Jesus is like, yeah, that's the law. Let me just make the law crystal clear to you, though. Because <laughs> the law says the only people that can take her out and stone her are people who aren't guilty of her sin. So Jesus just stands up. And he says, in the, in the original language, it's actually this way. It's okay to stone her. It, he actually says, Go ahead and stone her. you got to know her heart's pounding out of her chest right now. I mean, she's done for. She's 100% guilty, 100% dead laid on that floor. There is no hope at all for her. 
And then when she hears the one person that may have some little clue, some little twist of the law that could save her life, in the temple, he says it's okay to stone her. As long as none of you guys that are taken out there have sin in your heart right now. Every one of them was sinning. You know why? They were trying to trap Jesus. Every one of them was filled with rage and sin and anger, and they were, they were destroying their testimony before all the people, and Jesus knew it. So he just says, as long as you guys are righteous, that's, that's who gets the stone people, pure people. So as long as y'all got a lot of purity going, y'all just go ahead and take her. It's okay. And you know, the oldest Pharisee would be the wisest one there. The Bible says, beginning with the oldest. This guy was a big, huge beard. You can picture this old Jewish man. Big, huge beard. He's so excited about what's fixing to happen. There's no answer he can give. And Jesus takes the whole law, puts it in one sentence, and says, yeah, it's fine to stone her, as long as you're not guilty of sin. And then he stoops down and writes in the dirt again, like, I'm not even going to watch y'all walk away. You don't even deserve an audience while you're walking out of here. It's interesting, isn't it? When the temple doors burst open that morning, there was, there was a mob of religious righteous people and one adulterous sinner. When Jesus dealt with the situation, there was a woman who was no longer condemned and a whole bunch of religious people that were sent out in condemnation. They were sent out with their sins on them. Isn't that incredible? But it's because one of the one of them ended up at the feet of Jesus, a hundred percent helpless and a hundred percent hopeless. That's the very best place for us, by the way. And this Jesus that people give a terrible reputation to for being so cruel, he had every chance right there to go, yep, law says stoner. See you. Take her out. You know, you're going to go back teaching now. That's not how Jesus deals with sin. It's not how he feels about people. He actually engaged her with the truth. So I'll just give you lesson three. He says, Jesus loves sinners. Please don't ever forget this. And I want you to tell as many people as you can, Jesus loves sinners. He came to pay for sins and to redeem them. Every one of your sins in this room, he came to pay for those on the cross. It cost him his life. He left heaven above and came to pay for sins. Um, since the very first sin of Adam, God had a plan for Jesus to be born of a Virgin Mary, suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified and dead and buried, and rise from the grave and set us free from our sins. If we would just trust in him by grace through faith, we can know that Jesus came to set us free from our sins. The first thing Jesus does is set you free from captivity. It's exactly what he did with this woman. The very first thing he did is set her free. See, she was a captive of those uh, religious people. And Jesus says, you know what, I'm just going to set you free. I'm going to send those guys running. They're going to take their rocks and leave. And that's exactly what happens. He speaks the truth, and he sets them free. The second thing he does, he gives a, a promise and a commission. The promise is this. Um, he says, where, where are those who would condemn you? As she's trying to get up off the ground, he's, he's stood up now, and he's helping her up. And I think he'd get his disciples and say, guys, bring a robe over here first. Somebody give a cloak. Give a cloak to her. And he would wrap her up, and he'd say, where are those who would condemn you? And she says, she looks around. They're all gone. Nobody in it now. And he says, neither do I. That's a promise from God. You know that? Romans 8, verse 1. Write it in your notes. I didn't put it up here for you. Write it in your notes. Romans 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None. 
So when you beat up yourself for your sins, when you let the guilt of your own sin, the guilt of your own struggles uh, weigh you down, that is not coming from God. And either you're generating it yourself or you've listened to a bunch of lies of the enemy and the enemy has told you you're a bad person and a terrible person and you're listening to the religious nutcases around you that do that kind of stuff. And in truth, uh, Jesus is saying, I would never condemn one of my own children. Matter of fact, I died on the cross to pay for your sins, so you're never condemned. That's the promise. And then the third thing Jesus does is commission us. He does it to every Christian. He sets you free from your sin. He then gives you promises to follow. Then he gives you a commission. He says, okay, how about this? King James says it this way. Go, sin no more. I'd like you to just make some changes in your life, would you? Would you just go out from here and and do things a little differently? I bet she did. I bet she's one of the people that loved Jesus all her life. There are a number of women that followed Jesus around like the the men disciples. There was a group of discipling women that followed around and cared for him and cared for the guys. And I bet money she's one of them. I bet she hung out with him from then on because the day she ended up in the temple was her last day on earth. She was 100% deserving of death and 100% guilty of sin. And those dumb Pharisees did the best thing in the world they could ever do for her. They caught her in her sin, and they threw her at the feet of the Redeemer, the God of second chances. And he went, you know what? I got this. Now, when he says to the Pharisees, as long as you're not guilty of sin, you can you can condemn her. It's okay, stoner. They all left. Who in that temple outer court was not guilty of sin? Jesus. The one person that had the chance to go, you know what, now, nobody else can condemn you, but darling, I can't. I, I have never sinned against you or anybody else, and so I can take you out and stone you right now to death. And, and people say we, we serve a, a judgmental, harsh, and cruel Jesus. And I go, man, there's, that's just not in your Bible. It's not there. He had every chance right there to condemn her, and instead he says, you know what, I've, I've come to earth to pay for all this, so I'm not condemning you. Here's what I'd like you to do. Just make some changes, would you? You go and make some changes in your life. Live a little different now because you've encountered the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Broken sinners, hurting, and helpless will always find help at Jesus' feet. Broken sinners who are hurting and helpless will always find grace and mercy at Jesus' feet. And they're always going to find help there. But you know, Jesus gets a real bad reputation, not from what he did, but from how we translate all that or how we live it out. So my challenge to the body of believers that gather here this morning is would you live a loving life towards sinful people? Would you love them in spite of their sin? Um, Don't condemn them uh, as people. You You can look at their sin and turn that uh, differently and say, you know what, your sin is horrible to me. It's, it's despicable. It's disgusting, and it hurts so bad when you sin like that. But whatever you do, do not condemn them in their sin because God came to pay for them. Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins. Draw them to a safe Say, Man, I know a, a Jesus who would love for you to meet him, and he's just going to help you with all that. He wants to change your life and encourage you. He wants to save you from your sins and give you a, a whole new life. As Ken Davis says, he wants to give you uh, abundant life, fun. He wants your life to be filled with good stuff. 
not damaged in sin. So I'm encouraging you today. If you're here today and you, you've most likely uh, been given several second chances, I bet every Christian in here, in fact, let's just do that. If you know the Lord's given you a second, third, and fourth, and fifth chance, will you raise your hand? All right, so you're testimonies of second chances, aren't you? Would you bring somebody next week? We've got homecoming next Sunday, and that'd be a great day to fill up our pews a little more and have people come, and we're going to have some uh, do some of our favorite songs that our, our music people love to do. There's a lot of good energy in our music Sunday. And uh, we want to we want to celebrate the God of second chances on our homecoming uh, because Northside's really a testimony of that. Everybody in this room, raise your hand. God gives you second chances all the time. Um, so bring somebody that's maybe questioning God or judging God or are far from God and they're just not they haven't figured all this out. If you'll just figure out a way to lure them here. We got dinner on the ground. It's not a hard lure, by the way. Dinner on the ground, so it's good free lunch and all neat kind of thing, and uh, and just a good morning to be with God. So. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's bow our heads today.